Please open your Bibles again this morning to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, I appreciate these musicians leading us in this worship every week. I appreciate our children's workers taking our children to children's church now as well. This church family serves the entire, the entire church family. I so appreciate that. As you're turning to Matthew 18, I hope you're able to get a copy of uh, the notes that we have. This will be our final installment on our journey of forgiveness from Matthew 18. And, and again, let me just say, uh, I just want to have to say something to the men of, of our church, age 15 and older. Uh, this could be your first time ever at our church. This is for you, as well as to the most seasoned member. Uh, guys, uh, the upcoming February 2nd, it's a Friday night, 4, 4D Men Pizza Meeting is uh is open for registration make sure if you haven't registered yet uh, register you just sign up at the information desk there's no cost uh, for the dinner or this meeting we will take a love offering at the event but uh, we don't want that to be a hindrance to you so please make sure you get signed up before the deadline and i just want to take a moment too and invite you to return for our five o'clock service this evening i'm Really looking forward to our gathering. I'm going to be preaching the first installment of our, what we call the winter series. And we're going to be studying together on Sunday nights uh, for about eight Sundays um, through the first, over the epistle of 1 John. And I'm going to introduce that tonight. And I've enjoyed the study and look forward to gathering with you for that. But your Bibles are open to Matthew 18 this morning. Have you ever found yourself in a situation and you're wondering, well, what do I do now? You saw one of those events in my life a few weeks ago. I'm just up here minding my own business, preaching a sermon, and a big brown furry spider. I'm still convinced it came from another country and it came in on these poinsettias we had here. I don't know. I've never seen this kind of spider in Michigan. Maybe I just haven't been looking. But he was big brown He looked me right in the eyes, and he went from this part of the pulpit, across my notes, you know, around here, over to this side, in my sermon. And that's like, what do I do now? Well, I decided I didn't like the way he was looking at me, but I wasn't going to call attention to him. I didn't want to feed his ego. I let him go on his way. There was a nonviolent approach to that. No confrontation, no guts, nothing. Just let him go on his way. He didn't mess with me. I won't mess with him. He walked on my notes, but you'd think that was the end of the trial. At the end of the sermon, what happened? Well, you remember, he shows up again. Somehow he got back over here, and he started working his way over here, and he just sat there, and he's just looking at me. I'm a little upset this time. It's towards the end of the sermon. I have a little more brain brain, um, width left now. I can deal with him, and so I actually said something to you. I said, hmm, a spider. Remember that? And I flicked him off. A little violent, but I didn't break any bones. I was, I was easy on him. Just wanted to move him along. And that's it. So I finish the sermon, pray, we sing the last song. My wife and I go out to the lobby, and then I hear the next guy up here, Pastor Michael. Oh, hmm, spider. Remember that? It hasn't happened since, but that's just one of those times where you're looking at it, and you're like, well, what do I do now? What do I do now? You know, That might be what you're thinking. As we've come as far as we have on the journey of forgiveness. The journey of forgiveness. 
You may be asking, well, what do I do now? We've reached the conclusion of our trip together. As a matter of fact, as far as we can tell, last week I finished the final verse in Matthew 18. You're like, well, what do we do now? You say you got one more message on this. We're out of that chapter now. What do we do now? And by the way, the promise was when we started this journey of forgiveness over by that wall, maybe over there by the piano, we had someone over by that wall in our mind. We either had their face or we had their name written in a blank in our mind. And we're like, I got to forgive them. And I told you at the beginning, that sounds hard and it will be hard. But it's a journey you have to take, just like our Lord took, took Peter on in this chapter. And we've made four stops, and I have boxes in your notes there just to review the stops we've made. Don't want to take a lot of time with it, but in verses 21 to 22 of chapter 18, that was stop number one on our journey. It was called Admit Your Hesitancy. The first thing, if we're going to get ready to forgive whoever that person is down there, we have to first, down here, at the beginning of our journey, do some repenting of our own and admit that we are hesitant to forgive. We fear the change that will be required of us towards that person if we forgive them. We fear the exposure that we might face, that how we actually sinned with them or in response to them, and we'll have to ask their forgiveness. We fear the vulnerability of forgiveness. If I forgive them, if I get soft, I'll get hurt more. And we also fear the insincerity of them. They've asked before, they've sinned before, I forgave them before, why should I do it again? And these are fears that make us hesitant to forgive. We want to be scorekeepers. We want to stay in charge of the scenario. And Christ, in stop number one, called us to a Christ-like posture of forgiveness, a posture that's ready to forgive even before we're sinned against. And then we came to that second box, or that second stop, and that was in verses 22 to 27. After we've made that first stop of repenting in our own heart, we came to that second stop, which we called, Remember Your Story. And here in the parable of Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of an unworthy servant forgiven an unpayable debt. And then we found out that was, that was us. That's our story. That 10,000 talent debt that this one man owed the king, he couldn't pay. He pleaded for mercy, and he received it. Mm, what a story that is. That's a picture of you being forgiven of your sin when you came to Jesus. And we wish the journey could end there, but there was a stop number three in that third box. That was verses 28 to 30, and the name of that stop was Guard Your Heart. Because even though we can confess our hesitancy and, and, and cry out to have a, a heart posture to forgiveness on stop one, and stop two, we, we revel in the story of our rescue by the gospel. We can still come to stop number three and, and have to watch our heart that what comes out of this guy's heart in this parable our Lord's telling doesn't come out of our heart. We, we saw in this parable a mirrored reaction of the world. You see, he turns and walks out of the king's hall, goes to the steps outside and finds someone that owes him 30, or 90 days wages. That's it. It's not anywhere near 10,000 talents. And he grabs him by the throat. He says, pay me what you owe. And, and he refuses to forgive the very words he used with the king a 
few minutes earlier. This man that owes him 90 days' wages is saying the same words over and over, and he's refusing over and over. What did we see there in this stop, guard your heart? We saw the mirrored reaction of the world. We saw a skewed perspective of offenses, big as little and little as big. We saw a short memory of mercy, forgot about his own forgiveness. And we saw a quiet desire for suffering. And we came that far on this trip, and then we had a difficult stop last week in that fourth box. That fourth box is called Fear Your Lord. That was verses 31 to 35. And we saw this, that it's possible to come this far on this journey and still not have a heart ready to forgive that person. And last, this past week, the stop number four was a warning to us that if we continue to hold on to that bitterness, We were promised that we will face God's people, we'll face God's rebuke, and we'll face God's discipline. We've made four stops on this journey, and we've run out of chapter 18. I want to congratulate you for staying with us this far in a difficult journey, because the longer we've been on this journey, watch this, that person's face has been getting closer and closer and closer to you. And after stop four, guess what? Guess what's next? You're right up to the face of the person God wants you to forgive. What do we do now? What do we do now? We have have taken the journey. We are postured for forgiveness. And it happens. You say, what? Luke 17.3 happens. Where Jesus said, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. That's right now on our journey. What do I do now? Well, whatever you do now, it has to be in accordance with the last phrase of Matthew 18. Look at Matthew 18, verse 35. It must happen. Your next move must be Look at the last three words. From your heart. It's not a show. It's not a tweet. It's not a meme. It's not a show. It's not, it's not a production. It's from your heart. And so here, at this final stop on our journey towards forgiveness... I want you to understand four facts in the moment of forgiveness. Four facts. This last stop on our journey doesn't surprise you. We call it forgive. Forgive. First of all, the first fact you need to grapple with is this. You need, to, you need wisdom. You see, there's wisdom needed for forgiveness at this point where you stand right now, no matter who's the face looking at you, there's wisdom needed for forgiveness. You say, what do you mean by that? You actually may have a choice in this moment. After all this journey, after all this repenting, after all this investigating your heart and fearing the Lord, it's time to forgive. Well, you actually may have two options, plural. You know, there's a question I want to throw out to you right now. As you stand there, are you supposed to push 
for repentance and for forgiveness, listen, for every possible suspicion, every possible offense, every possible slight or look or word or silence? Are you supposed to push for this repentance and forgiveness for everything? I want to answer that question with four passages. I'm going to read them to you. I want you to write these four down. If you're writing your Bible, cross-reference these in the margins to each other. Keep these four verses nailed together the rest of your life. The first reference is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to get to this in our study when we return to 1 Peter in a few weeks. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 8, and by the way, 1 Peter is written by a guy who had to be forgiven a lot during his pilgrimage. Peter writes, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because, listen to this next phrase, love covers a multitude of sin. A multitude of sins. You hear, Peter? That's the first passage. I got another one I want you to attach to it. The other three will be from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Listen to this. Hatred stirs up strife. You know the rest of this verse, don't you? But love covers all transgressions. Saying the same thing Peter just said. Love covers all transgressions. Peter very well may have been thinking of that verse in God's providence as he was writing his epistle. The third verse is Proverbs 17, verse 9. Listen to this verse. He who conceals a transgression seeks love. starting to sound familiar now, isn't it? He who, see, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. you got three verses. Here's a fourth one. Keep them tethered together. Write them. Cross-reference them in the margins of your Bible. You'll need them. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And listen to this. It is his glory to overlook a transgression. Those are four pretty hefty verses. So what do we do with that? Because of those verses, at the very least, because of those verses, I believe with all my heart that there is such a thing as unilateral covering. Unilateral covering. You say, what does that mean? Well, unilateral means you do it whether no, someone else does it or not. Covering is a word I'm choosing instead of the word forgiveness. I believe scripture teaches that forgiveness is a transaction. But covering is not a transaction. It's taking it off the table. I believe those verses teach unilateral covering, which means this. It's choosing not to consider an offense holdable. It's an offense. You're just taking it off the table. Jay Adams, in his foundational book on forgiveness, it's called From Forgiven to Forgiving. I've mentioned that book to you in the past. 
he writes on this very topic, and he's right because he agrees with me, okay? He writes, but, you ask, must one go to another about every offense? Must there be rebuking and repenting and forgiving over everything that happens? That's a good question. The answer, no. God has provided a means for handling the multitude of offenses that we commit against one another, but it's not the transaction of forgiveness. He continues, in 1 Peter 4.8, Peter points out that those who love one another cover a multitude of sins in love. It's only those sins that throw the covers off that must be dealt with, with the Luke 17 or Matthew 18 processes. Those offenses that break fellowship and lead to an unreconciled condition, those require the transaction of forgiveness. Otherwise, we simply learn to overlook a multitude of offenses against ourselves, recognizing that we are all sinners and that we must gratefully thank others for covering our sins as well in love. End quote. I believe there's such a thing as unilateral covering. It's one of your options at that moment. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. So the wisdom needed starts here. You must prayerfully consider your options. And you only have two. Never let this get out of your head. You only have two options at that moment, either to lovingly cover or to lovingly confront. Hear me, there's no third option. If you choose, number one, to lovingly cover, you will later say, what offense? So prayerfully consider your options, but secondly, prayerfully make the decision. Prayerfully make the decision. You say, okay, so I don't like conflict, so I'm always going to do number one. I'm going to be that pushover that I don't want to upset anyone, so I don't want to have a difficult conversation even though they seriously sinned, and, and so I'm just going to cover everything in love. And while I'm at it, I'm not only going to cover them in love, I'm going to cover all of you in love, to just kind of cover you for a couple months of offenses towards me. I mean, do you know someone like that? Are you someone like that? You see, while you have two options to either lovingly cover or lovingly confront, it's not up to you totally on which one you choose. Because, number one, confrontation is needed if the relationship is broken. I'm not saying if there's a, a cooling off period of a few minutes or, or la- until later in the day. I'm, not, I, I'm talking about there's a change, a lasting change in your speech towards each other or in the time that you spend together or in the posture towards each other or even now a growing lack of concern for each other, if if there's a growing chasm between you and this other person, covering that in love is not an option for you. You must lovingly confront. 
that's what set us off here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. You have to go if they have an offense against you or you have an offense against them. As a matter of fact, back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. And some people say, oh, I see, forgiveness is more important than worship, so I need to pause worship if I have conflict with someone else and then come take care of that, forgive, and then, or get forgiven and then come back and worship. Is that the, what Jesus is teaching? No, he's saying that worship is part and parcel, has everything to do with your forgiving. Your forgiveness is an act of worship. So if there's noticeable breach and a growing chasm between you and the other person, you may not cover that in love. You have to go to them. Number two, confrontation is needed if it is a serious offense against someone else. A serious offense against someone else. You see, this, this whole love covering thing that we've seen in, for example, those four passages I just showed you, that love covering option is only dealing with offenses against you. If it's a serious offense against someone else, either directly or by example or schismatic activity or moral compromise, you can't cover that in love. They need to be approached. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, as far as the church family goes, a little leaven getting in there affects the whole lump of dough. If someone's sin is going to have a a growing impact, and it was a sin against someone else, not you personally, but its effect will reach you, you have to go to them. And that's what we saw in Matthew 18, verses 6 through 7. We've got to engage the church. Number three, confrontation is needed if God's glory, I think you have room for two words in that blank, either his glory or his church are marred. If someone is going off in a lifestyle or a doctrinal way, an anti-gospel way, and they're being involved in factious activity, you can't cover that in love. Paul uses some helpful words as he indicts the Jews when he writes to them in Romans chapter 2, verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I find these words in Ezekiel 36, verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Paul, in writing about the younger widows in the church, says, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. And positively, Jesus said, or Paul says, the Spirit of Jesus through Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 31, whatever you do, even if it's eating and drinking, do all for the glory of God. If someone is, is, is deviating off the rails, and it's not just a hiccup, they're staying and building steam on this new trajectory, a moral trajectory, uh, a schismatic trajectory, you can't cover that in love. It's not an option. 
And then number four, confrontation is needed if the offender is in danger. You can't cover something in love that might destroy them. Is what they're into, is the direction they're heading harmful directly to them, destroying relationships with others, and no longer demonstrating any aspect of sonship. John MacArthur gives a few helpful suggestions for this one. I'm I'm very indebted to him for this point. Examples would be doctrinal error. That would be evangelical gospel error. Moral failure. Repeated and growing habits that are harmful to the body. Destructive tendencies. Yeah, stuff like that. Paul would write in Galatians 6.1, If anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And again, to quote Dr. MacArthur, he says in his book on forgiveness, which is a book he leans heavily on what Jay Adams had said too in his book. MacArthur says, we are easily tempted to confront the sins we should overlook and to overlook the sins we should confront. So you need to have wisdom because you have two options, not a third option. It's one of two. Either lovingly cover with these provisos, these four provisos in play, or lovingly confront. You see, why do we need such wisdom? And the answer to that is because of what you are setting yourself up to do in the transaction of forgiveness. You also need to understand, secondly, the promises made during forgiveness. The promises made during forgiveness. There's three of them. And I'm helped on this point with the writing of Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker. Different people word these promises differently, but we're usually saying the same thing. There's plural promises. When, when they sin against you, go to Wimbledon with me. On this side of the net is the offender. They sin against you. The ball's on your side of the court. And you lovingly confront them. You send the ball back to their side of the court. They own the sin and ask your forgiveness. The ball comes back over to your side of the court When you hit it back, you're hitting it back with these three promises. Promise number one, I will not hold this in my heart. When you say, I forgive you, you're not saying, you're saying Bible words, I forgive you. You're not saying it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. You're saying, I forgive you. You're in essence saying, I will not hold this in my heart. Now, there's a main concept for this promise, and it's a concept, get this, of meditation on your part. Meditation. Because you and I are told in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so it begs the question, how does God forgive a sinner when they come to him for salvation? We saw this in our first stop. Your sin is never to be met again when God forgives you. Isaiah, or Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Your sin is never to be seen again. 
Isaiah 38, 17. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, Lord. You have cast all my sins behind your back. When God forgives you, your sin is never to be found again. In Micah 7, 19, we read, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the what? Of the sea. They'll never be found again. And when God forgives you, your sin will never be met again, seen again, found again, or read again as a charge against you. Again, Old Testament, Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. There's a principle here, and again, I think Jay Adams words it well. It doesn't say God doesn't for, that God forgets. He can't forget. He's omniscient. But he remembers something instead of your sin, and it's the righteousness of his son and the sacrifice of his son. So Jay Adams words it this way, forgetting is passive. Not remembering is active. Did you get that? It's an issue of meditation. And Adams gives a story in his book about a king who needed more gold in his kingdom. So he got all these magicians together in his kingdom, and he says, I need you to turn all the rocks in the kingdom to gold. We're running short on gold and cash. And Well, if you don't turn all the rocks in the kingdom into gold, I'm going to kill you. Off with your head, magicians. Get to work. Have a nice day. Well, one of those magicians was very wise. And he said to the king, after all the other magicians were losing their head, he went to the king and he says, oh, I got the situation. I have the answer. These guys didn't know what they were doing. I have the answer, king. We're going to have more gold than you can shake a stick at. The king's like, really? What's the, what's the deal? You've got to put all this gold into this, this, this large um, uh, container. And you've got to add hot water and you have to put the herbs in and all that. And then it has to be the king who stirs it. It can't just be a magician or a a common person, the king, you king have to stir that. And you can never stop until the gold comes out. It'll be changed to gold. But king, whatever you do, and this is what these guys didn't know, while you're stirring, you can't think about elephants. Do not think about elephants, king. Whatever you do, I mean, if you want all this gold, as long as you keep stirring, the gold's going to be coming out. Just please don't think about elephants. I mean, this magician was brilliant. Because what's the only thing the king could think about? Elephants. You think he ever got rock to turn into gold? The answer is no. And this magician died at an old age, deep in retirement. He kept his head. It's hard for us to... To not want to focus on the very thing we're not supposed to focus on when someone sins against us. And we're getting ready to say, I won't bring this up against you. If you're not going to think about the offense, then you have to think about what you're going to put your mind on every time, a thousand times a day if you have to. When that offense comes back to your mind, and you've promised not to hold it against them and hold it in yourself, 
What are you going to make your mind run to? And the answer to that is the gospel and your story. Because as grievous as that offense was, it's, it's significantly grievous against you by that person. No one's denying that. But it pales in comparison with your 10,000 talent debt that was forgiven by your king. That's the only way to keep that promise. I will not hold this in my heart. There's a second promise. I will not spread this around to others. Proverbs 16.28 says, A whisperer or a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 18, verse 8, The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. And Proverbs 6.19 says that there's some things that God hates. And one of the ones that makes the list is one who spreads strife among brothers. When you say, I promise not to bring this up to others, you're saying, I'm not going to talk about it to other people. It's, it's done. It's not going to come up in prayer meetings. It's not going to come up in gossip sessions, in private threads. It's not going to be whispered to my buddy on the golf course. You don't talk about it. I will not spread this around to others. And then the third promise is this. I will not bring this up against you. Now this promise says I'm not going to keep saying, hey man, I forgave you. Remember, remember when I forgave you? Remember that? And it's almost like you want hymns written about you. What you're doing with that and what I'm doing when I do that is keeping it in front of them. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Proverbs 17.9. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, says that a woman came to her pastor for counseling and the pastor says, what can I help you with? And the woman said, whenever my husband and I fight, my husband gets historical. And the pastor says, oh, you mean hysterical, right? And she says, no, I meant historical. Whenever he gets mad, I get a history lesson of all my failures, including the one in front of me. These are your promises. When you send that ball back over the net, you're saying, I promise not to dwell on this in my heart, not to talk about it to others, and not to bring it up to you. And all I know is on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells all of us in Matthew 5, 37, let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. I mean, look at those promises. Look at, look, 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 look at, look at the promises. I think we can agree on a couple principles as we look at that promise. Pr principle number one, biblical forgiveness is deeply humbling, isn't it? To confront, to ask forgiveness, and then to make these promises. Biblical forgiveness is deeply humbling. And then there's another quick principle that I just can't leave alone. If you break your promises, you're the new offender. You're the most recent offender in that relationship. These are heavy promises, but not quite as heavy as the ultimate goals you are pursuing. You need to understand another truth. Number three, you need to see the goals pursued in forgiveness. 
the goals pursued in forgiveness. And you're going to see quick, quickly that ultimately your forgiving of that person is not all about you. See, what do you mean? What are the goals? Well, you put God's glory on display when you forgive like that. I put God's glory on display? Yeah. First of all, his grace towards sinners. Remember our guy in this parable in Matthew 18? Look at verse 32. Then summoning him, the king summoned this guy and said, You wicked slave, and look at this. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? And look at these next words. In the same way that I had mercy on you. When you forgive like that, you're putting God's glory on display as to how God forgives on a grander scale. And the deeper the hurt, listen, the greater the display. See? You put God's glory on display, not just his grace towards sinner, but his power at work in you. The offender knows you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You say God lives in you. Even observers who know that you've been sinned against know that you are a believer, and they also know that you are wronged as a believer. So what do you do? You've got a ready audience. Let them see the proof of the power in you. Let them see it. The surpassing greatness of his power that indwells us, Paul writes of in Ephesians 1.19. Or Philippians 2.13, it's God who works in you, both to do and to will of his good pleasure. So you put God's glory on display, but secondly, you, you understand when you forgive someone, you promote the other person's Christ-likeness. You know that? As you show them that you are forgiving and you're demonstrating what forgiveness looks like, you are actually, get this, discipling your offender. You're studying how to stimulate to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24 Your aggression towards reconciliation is discipleship. And what's another goal? You prove your love for God through obedience. Your two verses here are Matthew 22, 37, and 38, along with John 14, verse 15. We're supposed to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do I know when I'm doing that? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. You say it, let's see it. And the greater the offense, the greater the display of love to God. John writes in 1 John 4, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is, who is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Yeah, this is a radical process. It is. It's quite a journey. But it leaves a radical product, this biblical forgiveness, this conditional, transactional forgiveness that we learn from Scripture. It leaves a radical product, a deep footprint. And I want you to see finally here the relationship created after forgiveness. Let's talk about that relationship over there. 
There's been a sin. There's been a confrontation. There's been a confession and a request for forgiveness. There's been the promises of forgiveness. When that happens, let's look at that, at that relationship. Because I agree with Ken Sandy, who writes, to be reconciled means to replace hostility and separation with peace and friendship. So let's talk about that relationship now, on the other side of the transaction. First of all, that relationship now is beyond just being restored, right? It's not just restored, it's that, but it's beyond that. Why? Well, just think about it. After God reconciled us to himself, our relationship with him was better than before. That's an understatement. In our scenario, in our journey... It's going to be deeper because of the level of love that we had to demonstrate with great humility. So it's beyond just being restored. And we can also say this, the humility required on both sides deepens the relationship. There is humility in confronting. There is humility in asking for forgiveness. There is humility in making the promises of forgiveness. I can't help but think of what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. Verses 3 and 4, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. And I'll say this about that relationship. After forgiveness, you are both now traveled pilgrims. And you traveled together through a difficult journey and a sobering transaction. If I can borrow the words of Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? Bring the principle of that to this journey. We all have agreed together that there was a sin that needed to be owned and forgiven. You agreed that promises had to be made. You guys have taken a few steps together when you weren't looking. I'll say one more thing about that relationship after forgiveness. You both, get this, You both are now, whether you realized it or not, you are both biblical counselors now. You're both certified biblical counselors in forgiveness. I'll send you your certificate later this week. Because 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort others or comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. In other words, as we were hurting, God came to us and helped us and changed us. And we want to take what God has done with us to help someone else who needs to take this journey now that we have experience with. You're a certified biblical counselor in my book. But we have to finish here. So I finish with three concluding questions. I finish not just the sermon, but the series. First of all, what about unsaved? We got, some of you have been wondering about this. We probably should answer it here in conclusion. What about the unsaved? Maybe an unsaved person sinned against you, or you sinned against an unsaved person. An important verse for you to remember for this is Romans 12.18. Romans 12.18 says, As much as it lies with you, be at peace with all men. 
An unsaved person can't do the whole transaction all the way to the, to the, to the tenth degree because their ultimate sin is against God. But as far as their relationship with you, you can go so far. Galatians 6.10 says, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And even though their sin against you is ultimately against God, you can go so far. So my answer to this first question is, make it evangelistic. Make it evangelistic whether you're the one that got sinned against or you're the one that sinned against them. If you are the one who sinned against them, it might sound something like this. You might say to your unsaved friend, I need to ask your forgiveness. You know I'm a Christian. I take my walk with Christ pretty seriously. You know I go to church and all that. And I'm, I mean, that's something that's between me and God, just like it's something between you and God. But I got to tell you something. My, I take my relationship with Christ very serious. And what I did to you, what I said about you, was not okay, and I need to know that you are hearing me own it. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? Because I wouldn't want what I've been doing to you to put a sour taste in your mouth for my Jesus who stands ready to forgive you of all your sins and to bring you into the family of God. You just made it evangelistic, even when you're the one that dropped the ball. Well, well what, do, what do we do if, if the unsaved person's the offender? How do we make that evangelistic? It might sound something like this. They come to you and they say something. They're not going to use Bible words real well. They're going to say, eh, I really messed up with you. I really dropped the ball. I'm a jerk. You know, that's their way of saying, I sinned against you. So what are you going to say? What you, you say is, oh, thanks for coming to me and owning that. Yeah, that, that hurt. It stung. And the fact that you're coming to me means so much to me. And as far as my forgiving it, here, here's my promise back to you. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to dwell on it in my heart. I'm not going to talk to other people about it. After you say something like that, and, and then you have to help them up off the floor. Say, here's why I like making promises like that, and I know I can because God helps me, because that's the way I've been forgiven by God, and you can be too. So perhaps we've answered that question about what about the unsaved, but there's a second question, and it's, it's this. What about the unrepentant? What if it's another brother or sister in Christ, and it's a significant offense? Well, Matthew 18, 15 through 18 is going to be your, your story there. Actually, 12 through 18. Matthew 18, verses 12 to 18. It's what we talked about before this series, church discipline. It's a process. It's a patient process. But this is why, listen, this is why you count the cost regarding confrontation. If you're really touchy, and everything anyone says or does, you receive as an offense, and, and you want to get all drama and make everyone always uh, ask for your forgiveness, if that's you... You just be careful with that. If you're ignoring the covering and love thing that other people do for you and you might not realize it, you understand that if you're doing this with all the people in your life and even in your church and they don't repent, what, this is going to go all the way to church discipline? Are you ready to go that far with this? Because if it's a serious offense, it may have to. But if it's because they voted on their 
ballot differently than you? Uh-uh. There's a lot of weight on the unrepentant one. Is this really something that you can't cover in love? I guess the biggest question that we end this with is this. What about you? What about that picture on that last stop, that face that I asked you to put there at the beginning of our journey? What about the name you've written in that blank? What about you? What is your posture today, this morning, towards them? All I know is in Matthew 18, it says, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the theology, the rich theology of forgiveness that is explicit and constant throughout Scripture. It's been quite a journey. Thank you for the journey. And we'll revisit this as a church family in the coming years again because we all need reminders. But this is 2024, January 21st, and there's a certain picture of a face or there's a name in that blank for every one of us right now. Move us to forgiveness, Lord. Give us that posture. Help us obey. And I pray for anyone who's been on this journey with us or just with this sermon, this fifth stop this morning, who doesn't know you as your Savior and your Lord, Lord, would they, would they please... Be willing, work in their hearts so that they would come talk to me in the lobby right now and ask how they can know for certain that their sins are forgiven. I pray they won't leave church again without being able to talk to someone, opening the Bible and calling out to you for your free gift of eternal life. What a joy. And it changes everything. Would you do that, Lord? In Jesus' name.